Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. When Hamilton was staged at the White House in 2016, President Obama joked that Lin-Manuel Miranda's musical, quote, is the only thing Dick Cheney and I agree on. But their views of Alexander Hamilton, the man, are unknown. In 1806, former one-term president John Adams referred to his late rival and critic as, quote, the bastard brat of a Scotch peddler. Lost perhaps in the praise and criticism of Alexander Hamilton is his vision of the role of government in the economy, a vision that may have played a greater part in America's economic development than the ideas of, of Adam Smith. Almost 230 years ago, as the U.S. suffered upheavals and divisions across the states, Hamilton conceived a plan for what John Jay College economist and nation contributing editor Christian Parenti terms radical and rapid economic transition, a transition necessary first to sustain the revolution and later to sustain the union. Professor Parenti examines the evolution of Alexander Hamilton's political and economic thought and his underappreciated vision for this country in a new book from Verso called Radical Hamilton, Lessons from a Misunderstood Founder. Christian Parenti joins us now. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me on. It's good to talk with you again. Oh, I think that uh, this is a fascinating topic, especially the way you present it. And your first chapter is, Do We Know Hamilton? Well, can you summarize the popular view of Alexander Hamilton now and in light of the wild success of the musical and, and of Ron Chernow's biography, which served as an inspiration mm -hmm. For Lin Manuel yeah. Miranda's, what are you dealing with here that Chernow didn't? Well, Hamilton is seen as the patron saint of banking. That's the, the popular view that he was all about finance in terms of his economic thinking, and he was very important in in setting up the national credit system and creating the first bank in the United States, which is the basis for the for all later banking, really. Um, but what's overlooked is that. He wrote a lot about manufacturing, and as important as his concern with finance was, was his concern with manufacturing. And at the time, the U.S. economy, uh, this is at the end of the Revolutionary War, you know, the U.S. economy was predominantly agrarian, and Hamilton was very concerned with the viability of this project. At the end of the Revolution, the 13 colonies are bounced together by the Articles of Confederation, which is a, just a very loose defense pact. Sure. It's, it's nothing like the current Constitution. Congress, which was the only national institution other than the Continental Army, ha didn't even have the power to tax. It had to make requests from Congress for money. So there really wasn't much there in terms of a central state. And Hamilton was concerned that the entire project would fall apart and that the, the U.S., would be recolonized economically and probably directly um, by by the British or some other powerful outside force. And and his fears were in fact correct. I mean, there is later a British invasion. There is the Civil War, et cetera. So in in to, in in trying to secure sovereignty, Hamilton wanted to have a strong central state with a powerful military, and to do that there needed to be a wealthy economy, an economy that produced lots of wealth. And he was very clear that that meant transitioning from a dependence on agriculture to a manufacturing-based economy. And he was equally clear that this would not happen on its own. Uh, so the document in which he lays this out eventually is the report on the subject of manufacturers. And 
And that mm-hmm. begins with an attack on Adam Smith, which is kind of surprising. And so how I, how I stumbled into writing this book was reading reference to this report on the subject of manufacturers and, uh, and then not being able to find any substantial discussion of it in the literature on Hamilton. And it sounded sort of statist. It sounded at odds with the standard story of the development of American capitalism. And so uh, I tracked down the document and, and realized that indeed it was, um, you know, quite unusual given the, the kind of rhetoric that circulates and, and the ideas, many of them myths that we're all taught about how American capitalism developed. So that's you write that's that what, all the go ahead. Yeah, that, I mean, that's what's that's the key thing that that is left out. And so what I do in this book is I try to tell the story of that developmentalist vision, which is a plan to use to create a government that has the power to plan economically. And I mean, this is anathema to what, you know, American capitalism is supposedly all about. Uh, and I tried to kind of root that uh, come to an understanding of where these ideas come from for Hamilton. And they're very much rooted in his experience of the war and, and the kind of dysfunction of the war and the, the period that follows the war. Now, it's what you, uh, what you say we're ignoring is Hamilton's dirigist economic theory. Uh, do his ideas about the role of government in the economy explain why his views are ignored? Uh, do they differ much from the economic thinking that's dominated in the United States and Europe, at least in recent decades? Yes. Um, the, the contradiction in American economic development is that Jeffersonian ideology has triumphed, even as Hamiltonian policy has, has been implemented again and again. So we, we imagine that uh, the development of this economy it was very different than it, than it was. And I think the reason that these statist ideas are overlooked is because they threaten elite interests. Now, Hamilton was not an egalitarian. He's not some sort of proto-socialist. But there is something, um, you know, socialistic in a, in a very limited sense about his agenda of using protection, using state planning, even public ownership to drive an economic transformation towards a, a deliberate end. And I think that, that viewing an economy in that fashion threatens elites, that it suggests the idea that we can choose outcomes and, and economic destinations. We could, for example, choose to decrease inequality economic inequality, and we could use government power to plan uh, to move the economy in that direction. And elites who are perfectly fine with the astronomical levels of inequality we have now don't want people to think in those terms. They want the current arrangements, which suit them well, to appear as natural, uh, almost as you know, a matter of ecology or something that just happens on its own. But in fact, that is not the nature of uh, American capitalism or, or capitalism in general. There's a lot of kind of shadow socialism, a kind of hidden set of mm-hmm. um, government policies at the heart of the development of capitalist economies, including our own. 
Well, as I think about what I've read about Hamilton over the years, I realize he's become many things to many people, an abolitionist, as you say, an architect of American finance, an authoritarian bad boy, of course, the author of the Federalist Papers. And you write that as a person, he was a contradictory mix, a tough soldier, austere workaholic, exacting bureaucrat, yet also a sexual libertine who probably had at least one male lover, and a glory-obsessed romantic with pronounced suicidal tendencies. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, in, in, in finding his character as a person interesting, I'm obviously not alone. I mean, uh, everyone who writes about Hamilton either kind of, you know, enjoys what a character he was or or loathes him, but in doing so, sees how, you know, formidable he was. Um, so that's not entirely unique. But I mean, I, one thing I did notice was that there, there, he did seem to have, there's a lot of circumstantial evidence suggesting that he had a relationship with John Lawrence, who was the son of Henry Lawrence, who was for a while the president of the Continental Congress and the largest slave owner and one of the largest slave traders in the country there from South Carolina. And John Lawrence was uh, sent off to the UK to study law. And he was there during the, uh, the Somerset case, which made confirm that slavery was illegal in England, even as it was legal within the British empire, it was illegal in England. And he came back despite being set to inherit an enormous number of slaves, enslaved people. Um, he came back with sort of abolitionist sensibilities and he serves in the continental army and he and Hamilton were inseparable and, you know, often slept in the same room in the same bed together when they were billeted in houses. Uh, and their letters are, I mean, they just, uh, are, are kind of, you know, full of what would seem to be sexual energy and attraction. And, and there's, I mean, standard histories for years have comically, I think, bent over backwards to sort of explain away this intense relationship between these, these two guys. And then when Hamilton gets married, he, he sort of writes this um, kind of almost like a breakup letter to John Lawrence. And he says, well, you know, on, on the, the wedding night, I wish you could be there as well, blah, blah, blah. And then ha John, John Lawrence then like never writes to Hamilton again, goes off to the South, where the fighting has moved uh, and, and, and fights the British and seems like a jilted lover. And then, uh, you know, in the dwindling days of the war, basically commits suicide by redcoat. They've, uh, he's got a bunch of British soldiers trapped. And as opposed to waiting for reinforcements that were on their way, he leads this ridiculous charge against their, um, their, their makeshift fortifications and is cut down. So, there's a lot of circumstantial evidence that that these guys were were lovers. So, but you yeah, also point out, you also suggest that Hamilton had suicidal tendencies. The reason that he didn't uh, fire at Aaron Burr during their duel, perhaps. Um, I mean, who knows? I mean, he was also hoping that Burr would not shoot him. Was part of it. Um, yeah, he deloped. But it does seem like that was something suicidal. His son had been killed. Um, a year or two, maybe two years before the, the duel with Burr using the same pistols. And it was the same sort of conflict with the, you know, the, the uh, 
Hamilton was a federalist. The party system then was very informal. They were parties that, you know, that did not acknowledge themselves as such. They were de facto parties. So Burr was in the Jeffersonian camp. And, uh, and so the, the conflict between Burr and Hamilton was personal, but it also had political roots. And similarly, the duel in which Hamilton's son was killed emerged from a political conflict with a, a follower of Jefferson. My guess is uh, yeah, he, Christian. Go ahead. Finish your thought. But he, yeah, he's. I mean, you know, in that that uh, I mean, Hamilton has a kind of you know modern um, quality in that regard. His suicidal uh, tendencies. He, he has. A, he has a great quote that the you know he's, when he's writing to John Lawrence actually about how bad things are where he's at and and. It, it concludes his letter with, I say this to you because I, I know you know it and will not charge me with vanity. I hate Congress. I hate the army. I hate the world. I hate myself. Ooh. Part of the voice of the 18th century is kind of a modern sensibility. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming at WBAI.org. My guest is Christian Parenti whose latest book, this one from Verso, is Radical Hamilton, Economic Lessons from a Misunderstood Founder. Uh, Hamilton was born on the island of, of Nevis in the, the Leeward Islands, which were then called British West Indies. It's unclear as to what year, 1755 to, or 1757, they didn't keep records? Yeah. It's not, yeah, it's not really, um, there's some contradiction in, in when exactly he was born. I don't know which, you know, what the details of that are, but yes. What was his childhood like? He may, he may have lied. He may have, he may have lied about his age. Um, he may hmm. have been a little, you know, older or younger than he said he was. But he's, yes, he's born on this island. He's born out of wedlock. Um, his mother, his father abandons them. His mother dies when he's relatively young, leaving he and his brother, and he inherits, you know, only a few books, and he has to go to work at age 13 in a, a shipping um, office and uh, managing trade for some firm, and he begins writing articles for the island, the local press, and notables there are be quickly become aware that this young guy is you know, really smart and can write really well. And so they take up a collection and they send him to New York to attend what is now Columbia and was then King's College. He goes to a boarding school in New Jersey for a year. Then he goes to to what to King's College. And this is just as the American Revolution is heating up. And so he very quickly uh, essentially drops his studies and the students are forming militia companies like the, the Boston Tea Party happens like 1773. Things are sort of ramping up slowly. 1775, the, the fighting jumps off in Lexington and Concord. And by 1776, which, you know, should have been his like second year of college, he is commissioned as an artillery officer. And um, he begins, uh, Washington drives the British out of Boston and then the British come down to Staten Island and Washington comes down to defend New York and Hamilton joins up with the Continental Army and um, and plays an important role as an artillery officer. Sorry, there's an airplane in the background there. Um, 
plays an important role as an artillery officer. And to some extent, this is also, you know, where his, his economic education begins. He realizes right off the bat that war is an economic um, endeavor as much as anything else, that you've got to have money to, to have artillery. And uh, artillery also involves mathematics. And he's, a, he's an effective artillery officer. His men seem to like his leadership. And he actually starts getting courted by various generals to join their staff. And he uh, declines them all until he gets an offer from Washington himself mm-hmm. to join Washington's staff or what he called his family. Uh, and he became an yeah. aide. Well, he became an aide to George Washington at, at 20 or 21. Uh, what, well, before we get to what he was doing there, I want to get back to his background. Um, had his years outside of the, uh, the colonies uh, uh, played a role uh, in uh, uh, his political thinking, what would become his political and economic thinking? Because um, the well, founders uh, that were born in the colonies were, like Hamilton, subjects of the British crown. But uh, uh, were, were all colonial status similar? Was there a sense of common purpose? Well, um, I, you know, I, I think that his, his, um, his politics developed more in, uh, in the United States and that you know, he's quite, you know, quite young when he's, he's in the Caribbean. I think one thing, one experience that shaped his later politics is that being in the Caribbean and being raised around people of African descent, he, you know, he's not a racist. Um, Mm -hmm. He, the only thing he ever says on the subject of what we would, you know, call race now is he refers dismissively to you know, um, alleged differences in ability between uh, people of different colors. So one thinks that his, it's tempting to think that his, his advanced for the 18th century views on race had something to do with growing up on an island where there were lots of people of African descent. And so this, you know, it, it became harder for him to abstract um, people and to believe in these, these mythologies. Well, there's a line uh, that he wrote in Federalist 79, part of the Federalist Papers, uh, quote, a power over a man's subsistence amounts to a power over of his will. Does that reflect his thinking about slavery or just the overall human condition? The, yeah, the, I mean, the, and the relations between debtors and creditors. Yeah, I mean, that goes beyond slavery to, I mean, that's, that's fundamental to, I mean, that's, that's a comment on the nature of economic coercion, right? That, that, that is, that helps explain how within a framework of political liberties, you can still have, you know, really despotic power relations based on property and uh, access to it or lack of it. So, I mean, he saw that as for what it was, which is like a key, a key reality. It's not just the legal right to control people, but if you, if, you know, if people are are uh, hungry, then they are easy to control. They're desperate. 
After he became an aide to George Washington at 2021, um, he was he was promoted to colonel. Was he already bursting with ideas when he became an aide to the general? Is a, did they recognize that there was something very special here? Because George Washington and John Adams were both 20 or more years older than he was. Uh, yeah. How did they see yeah. this young man? Well, they saw him as very talented and his, his writing, you know, he's pamphleteering as soon as he gets to uh, the, the mainland. Uh, you know, he's writing essays and, and he's known as, as a very good writer. But his, his ideas are kind of boilerplate. They're like everybody else's. It's sort of like, you know, um, Lockean liberalism. Uh, his, his, his ideas are pretty similar to the later ideas of, of Thomas Jefferson. But there's a shift that occurs almost like I would argue an epistemological break that occurs while he's on Washington staff. So he joins Washington staff. And once he's on the staff, he sees how dysfunctional the war is and how mm -hmm. uh, tenuous the whole project is. And I argue that he actually has something of a nervous breakdown. This is something that's commented on this, this illness of his, but not much is made of it. And so what happens is he's on Washington staff. He joins Washington staff in uh, the, the beginning of 1777. And the Continental Army has been driven out of New York. It's being, you know, beaten again and again by the British, driven south through New Jersey. And the British take Philadelphia, which is where Congress is at at that time. And so Congress is sent flying like a covey of partridges, as John Adams puts it. And the, con the main body of the Continental Army, with Washington at its head, blocks the sort of protects Congress by the, um, occupying Valley Forge, which is in between Congress and the British who are occupying Philadelphia. And this is, you know, a famously brutal winter. What happens at the same time that autumn is that an invading force of British uh, under General Burgoyne come down from Canada and are intercepted by General Horatio Gates uh, by his forces and beaten at the Battle of Saratoga. And this is a, the first sort of really big victory that the rebels have. And they capture all these soldiers and also all of their armaments, a huge amount of weaponry. Mm -hmm. And this is very good news. This is, uh, helps, you know, with the European creditors who are lending money to the cause, makes the whole project seem viable. Uh, and, but immediately... Gates and another general in the North, Putnam, start to go rogue. They they uh, they don't want to share this weaponry. Each of them are planning uh, attacks, possibly on New York, and just independently starting to operate. Uh, Gates starts communicating with the War Board, which is a, a committee in Congress that's essentially like the Defense Department. I Gates is not going up the chain of command. He's trying to cut Washington out chain of command. And at this point, the states, things are, you know, very fragmented. States will send supplies to the Continental Army with specific requests that the clothing or ammunition or whatever go only to their state units. Uh, and so amidst all this, Washington needs reinforcements. And you could say, all right, well, this is just because Washington's trying to maintain his control. And uh, you know, undoubtedly, that was part of it. But he did have this legitimate mission, which is like defending Congress 
from the British in uh, Philadelphia. So he sends Hamilton up the Hudson Valley to meet Gates and Putnam and convince them to abandon these independent plans of operation and to send weapons and reinforcements down to Valley Forge. And this is a a very touch and go mission. Hamilton is just with one aide doing this young guy, 20, you know, maybe 22, 23 at this point, he manages to get these generals to do this after a couple of days. And then uh, as soon as he's returning, he has a collapse. He has what was described as a nervous fever. And he's described as delusional and ranting sure. thinking he's going to die. And he, has to hold up in the home of some supporters of the revolution by the name of Kennedy. After a couple of days of this, he attempts to leave and he falls back into this illness. And he spends two months in the home of the Kennedys. And this is often just sort of written off as like, well, he has some sort of illness and maybe it was a physical illness, but it also is described as, as him, you know, losing touch with reality, like ranting uh, and um, becoming, you know, sort of like hallucinating, um, not sort of, but actually described as hallucinating. And after this convalescence, after two months of this, he goes back to Valley Forge in um, January of 1778. And his writing and his ideas are totally different. His voice changes and his ideas change. And he begins writing letters to various political and financial figures, laying out essentially a, a template for what will become the constitution and uh, the, the first bank of the United States, this whole kind of vision of a new fiscal military state, a strong central central government that can tax and spend and borrow and crucially plan and transform the economy. So this, this breakdown seems to mark some sort of a, an epistemological shift. Yeah. He goes from being concerned about, you know, individual liberties and, you know, all that sort of stuff to these, these larger, more structural questions about how is this project to survive uh, beyond, beyond its moral arguments, which may or may not be compelling beyond all that. What does it actually have to do at, an economic level at an institutional bureaucratic level to survive. And I think and that's very important. The, in Britain, uh, Adam Smith had been observing the birth of the industrial revolution. Was there any industrial uh, industrialization in the colonies at the time of, of the revolution? And was Hamilton, you say he, he didn't always agree with Smith. How aware was he of Adam Smith or the British political and economic thought of the time? Well, Smith in Wealth of Nations, um, you know, it, it champions free trade and free markets, even though there is within the text contradictions. He says, well, in, in the, in the, when national defense is an issue, then it is legitimate for government to step in and to not leave, uh, you know, at the allocation of goods to the price signal, to put it in modern terms, right? And, and that's, seems like a kind of little aside, but that's actually pretty fundamental admission of how Britain itself industrialized because it was through the navigation acts and in, in the name of national defense that the British pursued a diergiste policy of their own. So, so there's contradictions in Smith, but what Smith advocates is laissez-faire, you know, to let things be. 
and, and that that'll work out as, as if guided by an invisible hand. And uh, Hamilton, we believe, wrote a whole treatment of Wealth of Nations, but it has been lost to history. Mm. Maybe it'll turn up somewhere. But he, I mean, he disagrees with this fundamentally, like th- that, that uh, letting the, the, the market do its thing is going to lead to development and economic transformation on the scale that he wants. So, um, yeah, and Smith is very popular. I mean, Jefferson called it the best book in existence, Wealth of Nations. Most of the founding fathers read Smith or read excerpts of Smith. So those ideas were quite dominant and they were, you know, they were the popular ideas of the British empire, even as the British empire violated those ideas by restricting trade with its colonies to only its, you know, British made and British uh, staffed ships. I mean, there's plenty of contradictions in, in the actual policy, but the rhetoric was free trade, laissez-faire. In 1776, the population of the 13 colonies was about two and a half million. Uh, in Britain, yeah. had eight million people in a much smaller space. Uh, the population of our largest city, Philadelphia, was just about 40,000 people. New York City had 25,000. Did the smaller populations alleviate some supply issues, especially since so many Americans worked as farmers then? Yeah, to some extent. And I actually, I realized I didn't answer your question, was there much manufacturing in, yeah. in the colonies? There was manufacturing, but um, there weren't factories. It was like workshop-based manufacturing. And it, it was developing, and this was one of the causes of the revolution, that the, the British were putting fetters on this, uh, the development of these sectors. For example, there was a nascent hat industry because there were lots of beaver pelts and the British prevented colonial sort of, you know, small capitalist hat, hat manufacturers from, from making hats. They had to export the pelts of the beaver to Britain so that hats could be made in Britain. And there was a number of these kinds of restrictions that thwarted the development of industry factories didn't yet exist but you know you had this kind of workshop based manufacturing and 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 they were being thwarted again and again there's a sort of a nascent uh, iron industry cabinetry and again and again the british are preventing the further development of these industries and so hamilton becomes um aware of of the extent of this infrastructure of production uh, in part because on Washington's staff, a lot of what he has to do is try and supply the army. I mean, he's like, when he, you know, he leaves the battlefield and the glory of being a commanding officer, and he basically becomes a kind of military clerk, and he's just you know constantly keeping ledgers and trying to like, you know, figure out how how to get all the components of production together to get what the military needs produced and then delivered. So he has some sense of this manufacturing base, but then after the war. His assistant, Tench Cox, does a, a thorough survey of the, uh, the, the extent of manufacturing such as it was. And so it existed, but it was not, it was not sufficient. And, uh, and, it, and Hamilton was aware that with, with proper assistance and guidance, it could become you know, a tremendously powerful force. And your this other question Len- was... Okay. No, go ahead. I was going to go to a break. Do you want to, can you hold on or finish your thought? Sure, it's thanks, okay. Sure. 
Well, if, if, what would you? He would ask another question before I backed up there about. <laughs> oh, well, no, I'm asking no, yeah, too many sparse, questions in a row. The sparse, the sparse, sparseness of the population. Yeah, yeah. I mean, food was, uh, you know, easy to procure because there were farmers, but really, um, there was uh, there had to be a lot of imports. So the war was heavily dependent on imports, and that led to heavy indebtedness of Congress and of the states because they had particularly weaponry had to be imported. There was there, weapons were being made in the U S and the, the Congress sets up two government owned armories, one in Springfield, Massachusetts, um, actually three, one in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, and then, um, then one in Harper's Ferry, Virginia. Um, but yeah, so there was, there was, there was, there was a lot of economic activity during the war, we can get into that after the break. I don't want to yeah. mess up your schedule here. Well, I have to take care of some business. This is Leonard yeah. Lopez at Large on WBAI, New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming at WBAI.org. Alexander Hamilton. My name is Alexander Hamilton. And there's a million things I haven't done. But just you wait. Just you wait. When he was ten, his father split full of it, debt ridden. Two years later, see Alex and his mother bedridden, half dead, sitting in their own sick, the scent thick. And Alex got better, but his mother went quick. Moved in with a cousin, the cousin committed suicide, left him with Contributing to WBAI to, to help us survive this economic crisis that the station is facing because of the pandemic. We know all of our listeners who are financially able to step up right now and uh, go to our website, give to WBAI.org, or to call 516-620-3602 to help keep the show and the station on the air. Again, that number is 516-620-3602. Our website, give to WBAI.org. That's give, and then the number two, WBAI.org. And one way to support WBAI through the year while spreading your financial commitment so that it's only a small amount taken out of your credit card or bank account each month is to become a sustaining member of this station, what we call a BAI buddy. BAI buddies are the backbone of our financial support here at BAI because they allow us to plan for the future and give the station and our show some sense of security during these uncertain times. I'm happy to announce that any listener who calls us now or today anyway at 516-620-3602 or goes to give to WBAI.org and becomes a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopez at large, will receive a free copy of the book that we've been discussing, Radical Hamilton, Economic Lessons from Misunderstood Founder by my guest, Christian Parenti. Obviously, uh, from listening to the conversation, you realize this is, is a lot of stuff that we can't get to, and it's all really fascinating. So all you have to do is sign up to become a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopez at Large today, and we'll make sure that you get a copy of the book. You don't have to do anything else. You don't even have to tell the operator on the other end of the line that you want the book. Just become that BAI buddy today, and we'll make sure you get Christian Parenti's book. Um, And uh, I'm sure that uh, there's a Hamilton fan in your life who would love to read it. Maybe that Hamilton fan is you. But whatever level you donate at, the important thing is that you step up and support the last 
uh, 100% listener-supported radio station on New York's FM dial. And please, again, be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopit at large. And from all of you at this station, thank you so much. And uh, now I am back uh, with my guest, Christian Parenti, whose latest book is Radical Hamilton, Economic Lessons from a Misunderstood Founder, published by Verso. Uh, what was Hamilton able to do after President Washington named him to be the first Secretary of State uh, of the Treasury in 1789? Uh, we'd already gone through the Articles of Confederation and all the problems there. So were they inventing government at this moment? Well, what happens is, I mean, before that government, there's a crucial interregnum, which is the critical period. So the, the war ends, most fighting is over in, in the Northeast by 1780, and it shifts to the South, but then the peace treaties in 1783. But from 1780, uh, for the rest of that decade, there is a tremendous economic slump because the war was a form of economic stimulus. You've got these eventually three huge armies, once the French get involved, and they need to consume enormous amounts of everything. Uh, paper, lead, uh, I mean, fodder for their animals, wood, right? So even as the war is a kind of a fetter upon production because workshops and homes are being destroyed, it also stimulates production because there's this tremendous demand. There's also enormous amounts of hard currency, uh, being brought in by the foreign armies. And then when all of that ends, the economy goes into what we now realize was a depression, probably as bad as the Great Depression. There, leading, uh, the to the was, leading to the Shays yeah. Rebellion and the Whiskey Rebellion and also yep. uh, a military conspiracy north of New York City and Newburgh? Yeah. But because well, there was so much popular unrest? Later, but yeah. yeah, it culminates... The critical period culminates with Shays' Rebellion. And what, what goes on there is, I mean, first of all, there's, I mean, there's conflict of all sorts. There, there's, uh, you know, uh, it, people of African descent who have escaped slavery, living in autonomous communities and maroon communities in the South, resisting uh, the, the powers that be down there. There's conflict up and down the frontier between white settlers and Native Americans. There's conflict between groups of settlers who are backed by rival speculative companies. And this, I mean, there's, you know, two, at least two little shooting wars between rival groups of settlers. And all of the states are burdened with these heavy duty taxes that they're trying to pay off. And so they're extracting enormous amounts of money from the economy even as there's this, you know, collapse in demand because of the end of the war. And during the war, there's hyperinflation, basically. Part of how the war is funded is through just printing money, and then the other way it's funded is through borrowing money. So after the war, deflation sets in, and, and that's very bad because if money starts gaining value, then investors are uh, disinclined to invest. Why risk your money by starting a new business if you know that your money will be worth more next year because prices mm -hmm. are, are declining? So all of this culminates in Shays' Rebellion. Another thing that goes on uh, during this, we now realize, and I think that I kind of put this together for the first time uh, in this book, is that there's a cooling uh, trend climatologically in the Northeast and this is, seems to be linked to two massive volcanic eruptions, one in Japan and one in Iceland. 
So there's a series of very cold winters and really wet, cold summers, which disrupt harvest. And this is happening in New England right as there's this massive tax requisition of 1785 goes out from Congress. And in Massachusetts, the, much of the debt that is being paid off has been accumulated in the hands of a very few speculators. Like a group of 35 men owned more than half of the debt in Massachusetts. So the, the authorities are beginning to foreclose on farms in central and western Massachusetts because the farmers can't pay their bills. And so the, the farmers organize and they call themselves regulators. They don't call themselves Shazites, but they're, they're, one of their main leaders is Daniel Shays, who was a, a captain in the Continental Army. And they begin by just closing courthouses. And this then evolves into an actual shooting war. Uh, it, it, this begins in the summer of 1786, goes through the winter of, of 86 into the spring of 87. And the Constitutional Convention is held very much in reaction to all of these crises and particularly in reaction to the guerrilla war that's opened up in Massachusetts with Shays' Rebellion. And so Shays' Rebellion is, is being mopped up as the first uh, delegates to the Constitution, Constitutional Convention arrive in Philadelphia. And at that convention, they hammer out this successor agreement to the, the, the uh, Articles of Confederation. I mean, they, you know, those who, who are hostile to the creation of this fiscal military state, refer to it as a coup d'état, which I think is a, a little extreme because they, you know, the states did work out a system of agreeing to this. That if if nine of the thirteen states agreed and ratified this constitution, then everybody would go along with it. And yeah. Hamilton plays an important role in in making sure that this new government will have certain economic powers, and this is often overlooked. So I do a close reading of Article 1, Section 8, which looks at what government allows itself to do, because most of the literature about the U.S. Constitution is concerned with how government works and, and overlooked is, OK, well, what does that government allow itself to do? And and buried in, you know, hidden, hidden in plain sight are a number of important economic powers, uh, including road building. The, the postal clause is the post office is in the news these days, you know is given the right to build postal roads. That that means that the post office for the really the, the first, you know, 40, 50 years of the 19th century operates as a large public works agency, building canals, roads, clearing whole rivers. Anyway, though so Hamilton uh is crucial in in creating that uh he's not alone in it at all, but he's crucial in creating the Constitution, and particularly giving this new state the power to plan economically. You, you can again, you can only wonder what he would say today about the debate about how government can or should intervene during recessions. Yeah, yeah, he would. Uh, he will. What he would probably say is, "Well, look what happens, regardless of the ideology of the people at the helm. Look what they do. I mean, and you know, as in two thousand eight, more recently." You've got these free market uh, fundamentalist economists and lawyers in charge of U.S. economic policy. And when the economic crisis comes, they toss their ideology out the window or they maybe don't toss it out the window, but they ignore it. And they start using government power in very robust uh, fashions. So he would say, look, the truth, the truth of the truth of my argument around planning 
is borne out in the in the actual behavior of states during crises. This is unavoidable. You have to do these things, or you face state failure and collapse. So he so he's put in uh, as Treasury Secretary, and he he begins writing a, a series of reports to Congress, famously you know creating the bank and the mint and arguing for that, and creating the uh, the the sort of a proto internal revenue service and a fleet of ships to uh, ensure that taxes are paid uh, and overlooked is his sort of the magnum opus of this moment, his final report, the report on the subject of manufacturers in which he lays out the, the template for how government can transform an economy. And, and he calls this the means proper and it's, you know, protective tariffs, but then also like strategic um, uh, alleviation from those, those protections, uh, control of strategic raw materials, like prohibitions on and exporting them, uh, subsidies for crucial imports, uh, investment in research and development, um, you know, on and on. And the bank is also, you know, 20% publicly owned. And so the standard- Influenced by the Bank of England? Because what we was because was it the 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 idea influenced by the Bank of England because we didn't have the Federal Reserve until 1913. Yes, it is influenced by by the Bank of England, and Hamilton realizes that w- what needs to be done is not to pay off the debt and balance the books, but that he he, he creates what he calls a funded debt, which is to say government debt that investors will invest in and earn interest and that he's concerned that, you know, that the speculator class will turn against this state and will sabotage it and candleize it. Uh, So he tries to tie their interests to it, which he does successfully. And this is part of the critique of Hamilton that, you know, he's merely helping speculators and it's true. He does help speculators, but so, so were his opponents essentially helping speculators in paying off state debts. So, Hamilton, first thing he does is he uh, he gets he he assumes all of the state debts. He gets the federal government to to unburden the states of their debts, and he does this with borrowed money from Europe. And the collateral for this borrowed money is essentially all of the land claims, the Western land claims of these states. So these states give up their Western land claims in exchange for getting their uh, their debts assumed by the federal government. And then the federal government doesn't try and pay off this debt, but it turns it into what Hamilton calls the funded debt. So that if if investors buy a piece of this debt, they will make at that time 6% interest. And this is when most investments in Europe are making 4% interest. And that the government can then just sort of continually manage this debt. And this debt becomes an asset that in many ways, because it has the backing of this competent functional state is as good as gold. And it, it, it becomes very important source of capital within the economy. And private banks are erected on the basis of this government debt that is not going to lose value. It's not going to evaporate. It is always going to give you 6% a year, et cetera. And, you know, an important thing that's often overlooked in the literature about this is that the, the tax burden on the average person goes way down as a result of this. Uh, paying off the debts, trying to uh, escape uh, the indebtedness of the state was actually leading to really exorbitant taxes on, on, on the average person. 
Didn't yeah. Hamilton and a number of uh, the other founders express concerns about what they termed an excess of democracy and and uh, uh, give priority to property rights over democracy or the equality that had been endorsed in the Declaration of Independence? Yes, uh, very much so. I mean, Hamilton is not, he's not a progressive uh, character. What I think is compelling about Hamilton is his realpolitik about what states are and what they can do. And yeah, and he, he's not, um, he's not a huge fan of democracy and that is his ugly side. However, one thing I would say, and I say this in the book to problematize that is that, you know, very often in American history, there's this kind of simplistic dichotomy imposed of that. It's like local government, good and accountable, democratic, central federal government, bad, despotic, uh, and elite. But actually many of these local governments were, uh, which were nominally democratic, were controlled by just local cliques of elites and um, rich, rich men primarily who were pursuing their parochial interests. So I try and problematize the, the linking of democracy and the local and, 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 you know, point out that in this day and age, the 18th century, when you got property qualifications and, um, you know, really, really restrictive uh, franchise that a lot of what is, is referred to as democracy was actually not particularly democratic. It was just little local bastions and Hamilton wanted to break those up and he did not want the country to succumb to the agenda of these parochial regional elites. And he wasn't totally paranoid in that because eventually that's what drives the civil war at, at the constitutional convention, Hamilton for one thing, it's hard to know what Hamilton actually said because uh, it was all written down by primarily Madison and others, and Madison then changed his version of events as the years went on. But one proposal of his that shocked everyone was abolishing states. Sounds pretty crazy, but if you had abolished states and wanted to replace them with federal electoral districts, I mean, you wouldn't have a minority rule as you have now where Donald Trump lost the popular vote, but due to the electoral college operating through states and due to states controlling their elections, which is in the constitution. I mean, that's, that's the basis of minority rule. You know, Bush uh, was a similar version of that problem. And the civil war is, you know, uh, where the caused by the federal government wanting to limit the expansion of slavery and these, these mini sovereignties rebelling and Hamilton projects all this, in what can sound kind of paranoid at the time, but in, in, in the Federalist Papers, which are written to argue for the ratification of the Constitution, he describes these problems that are indeed in the mail, as it were, you know, that you can't have two sovereignties uh, existing without, in the same space without conflict eventually arising. Unlike Ronald Reagan, Hamilton clearly didn't think that government is the problem. Hasn't the conservative view become part of, of market fundamentalism, a belief that private free market solutions must be better than, than government solutions? Uh, what would Hamilton have said about that? Um, yeah, I mean, I think he would have, he would have had to uh, disagree with that because it is in fact government that produces uh, the conditions that, you know, the preconditions for that these elites 
often benefit from. And so, I mean, I'm, I mean, I don't know what he would say, who knows, but, but what he did was, was fundamentally violate the rules of the free market. He did not let the invisible hand uh, take its path. He wanted instead the very visible hand of government planning and, uh, and infrastructure building and investment in R and D and even public ownership of industries. For example, the armories, the armory in Springfield, Massachusetts, which is government owned completely is that that's, that's the institution that invents interchangeable parts. A lot of uh, the industrial revolution sort of comes out of that, that public business and it seeds. A kind of, I mean, you could, you could argue that much of what drove the industrial revolution in new England was the Springfield armory contracting. And to this day, there's, um, networks of small firms throughout New England involved in precision manufacturing that are, you know, linked historically to the uh, the armory and and to this day are you know sadly linked heavily to the military industrial complex. So we I, have to know, leave it there. What, what unfortunately, say is if you really if you really look under the hood of American capitalism and you're honest about what you see, you see the the hidden hand of government and of public ownership and of public purchasing and procurement in driving innovation, in building whole sectors. And crucially, obviously, uh, with, you know, public, various types of public finance, bailing capitalism out of its disasters again and again and again. And we have to leave it there, unfortunately, Professor Parenti. Uh, Christian Perenti is Associate Professor of Economics at John Jay College, a part of CUNY. Uh, he is the author of six books, the most recent, Radical Hamilton, Economic Lessons from a Misunderstood Founder, published by Verso. I'm sorry we couldn't get to more, but we only had an hour. Thank you so much for being well, on our show. Thank you very much for having me, and uh, good luck with everything. And uh, that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to segment producer Hugh Sansom for preparing it. If you're just discovering our program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast, and you can find links to all of our past shows on our website, leonardlopateatlarge.com. If you'd like to comment on any of our shows, or if you'd just like to say hello, you can reach me by email at leonardlopate at WBAI. As I said earlier, WBAI has been put in a very difficult position by the pandemic, so if you value the kind of informative, in-depth interviews we bring you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m., please go right now to our website, give to WBAI.org or call 516-620-3602. And uh, if you do it uh, and become a BAI buddy, we are happy to send you a copy of my guest book, Radical Hamilton, Economic Lessons from a Misunderstood Founder. Hope you can join us again tomorrow when Edward Ball will discuss his latest book, Life of a Klansman, A Family History and White Supremacy. We'll see you then. <laughs>